Hello, and welcome to the Maximu Theater and Performance Podcast. On today's episode, Aaron, David, and I preview shows that are coming up in the next few months, and we also chat about a theater controversy that started on Facebook. Enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Oren Squire. I'm with New York Theater Review, occasionally, uh, and I review plays and go around the city and see stuff. I'm David Levy. You can read some of what I'm doing these days at castalbums.org and at talkingbroadway.com. And I'm Ben Ferber, known as... I had a joke for this. You never have a joke. All the cycling has (laughs) given you exercise brain. It's Yeah, yeah. I'm Ben Ferber. I have exercise brain. Ben... uh, Cycled a hundred miles yesterday. Is that right? Yes. And, uh, I climbed also. I climbed a mile. Oh my god! And then you did that a week ago too. Another hundred miles, or a few days before. Uh, yeah. Which I cannot even imagine. What? Why anyone would do that? But congratulations. Yes. Thank you. you I jogged I, like a mile yesterday. That's great. You know what I learned? I, I the Iron Man is. I didn't know what it was. You cycle a hundred miles. You run a marathon, and you swim like two and a half miles. So you're halfway there. Are you doing that? God, no. Uh-huh. I, I couldn't physically do that. Halfway bitches go straight to Iron Iron Man? Anyway. Speaking uh, of which. <laughs> oh, that was a segue. Um, yes, I can start it off, although I do want to talk more about Iron Man. That sounds fascinating. Uh, the first play that I'm excited about is Pulitzer Prize winning playwright Stephen Adley Gierkes' new work, Halfway Bitches Go Straight to Heaven, playing at Atlantic Theater Company's Linda Gross Theater on November 14th to December 22nd. Uh, And this is set in a halfway house in New York City, hence the pun on the title, Halfway Bitches Go Straight to Heaven. And it's directed by John Ortiz. And I feel like it's getting a lot of the old crew back together, and I'm excited to see it because Stephen Adley Gerges is one of the most uh, beautiful writers with curse words and one of the most explosive writers that's working right now. Uh, the Pulitzer Prize was long overdue, uh, and I'm excited to see the follow-up because I know he has so many rich stories from people of color, and he always does great research. And on Facebook, I could see the pile of candy bars and uh, cigarettes on his desk, which meant he was furiously typing away and rewriting this. Anyone else excited to see it? I mean, it's... Are we going to talk about the public controversy around this play? I did not know that, but please tell me. Oh, we definitely should. <laughs> yeah. I did not know that. Please tell oh, this me. This is the one. That, so, uh, Ben, I mean, you can talk about it. But I mean, in short, what happened was there is a staff member of the Atlantic um, who was uh, in some sort of publicity outreach position and um, was, like, invited to read the play as part of, like, hey, like, here's how to, like, publicize this to people. And they were like... <laughs> This play is really transphobic. Like, oh. here's a bunch of really, really awful things in it that, like, need to be discussed dramaturgically if this play, like, is going to be done publicly because it's not good. And transphobic how? Um, is this another Dave Chappelle debate we're going to have about, like, politically correct? Well, I think it was more or... like about the way that trans characters were used in the play as, like, characters to suffer and die so that everyone else can learn and grow. But uh, I may be misremembering. It it seems to be, I mean, it was difficult from, it was, it was, it was all on Facebook, but like hundreds of people interacted with this. Um, It seems to be a combination of uh, use of like killing people tropes, as well as like the character uh, herself was very stereotyped. 
but the lead character is transgender. I don't know if it's the lead character. But a character. But yeah. to, so just to the credit of Stephen Ali Gerges, this was a conversation between this staff member and the staff of the theater. And uh, the they, staff of the theater basically told them to shut up right. and sit down. And then they publicly resigned. But, and, then, and then Stephen got in touch and said, I'm actually very interested in hearing your feedback. I don't want to make a transphobic play. I want to be better. Can we talk about this? So, um, And then Gerges hired them as a consultant on the play. Oh, then that has a happy ending. Yes. Yeah. Well, there you go. There's no controversy. Problem solved. Well, but, well, I think it's joking. <laughs> but I think it's important that some people may have only heard the first half of the story, okay. not realized that it did come to a hopeful resolution. So a few years ago, I was seeing a play uh, that Labyrinth Theater was producing. I will not name the play. You'll Steven name it Ali, after we stop yes, recording. Yes, after we stop recording. And from context, everyone will know what play this is, I'm sure. <laughs> Stephen Adley Gerges was sitting two rows in back of me. Uh, it was not a good play. It was problematic when it comes to culture and social issues. I won't get into that. Uh, my friend was seeing it with me who had played a part in that play and did not enjoy it as a person of color. And afterwards, I went on a rant on Facebook where I did not list the play, but Stephen Adley Gerkes reached out to me because he knew uh, we were talking, he was there, he saw me <laughs> watching the play. Uh, and he's always someone who's proactive. If you have a complaint, if you're screaming and yelling, he is a New Yorker, he doesn't take screaming and yelling as an offense, he takes it sometimes as the beginning of a discussion. Uh, and so I was honored, number one, that he would even talk to me, but that he was actually trying to solicit my opinion about something that I found problematic. And, you know, he was like, oh, yeah, I understand. I hear you. Um, and the conversation continued. I'm not going to go into detail about that. But he has a track record of reaching out to people if they feel offended or if they feel their problems, if they have questions and trying to fix it or trying to make it more aesthetically, not pleasing, but honest. And I don't think if you're writing a play, for instance, about slavery, a black person would protest saying the N-word or whatever, how white people would act. Or if you're writing a play that involves transgender characters in the 70s or 80s, that they would protest the discrimination transgender people face back then and face now. It's a question of honesty in the artistic work and whether you're using it to brutalize people for sort of torture porn or whether you're using it to transform what exists in reality for underserved and disenfranchised populations. Mm. Well, I think also a lot of it's about the actual portrayal of the character. If they are portrayed honestly, yes. they're going to, in a vacuum, be like, oh yeah, this is a real person who I like believe as whoever they are, whatever their identity is. And then I think a lot of, a lot of works that are controversial in that way also write the characters completely stereotyped. Yes. They, they write them in a way that is not true to life, rather that is true to public understanding or true to like the things they are discriminated against for. Yes. Well, this is, uh, number one, I didn't know the first controversy and I didn't know the resolution of that. So this makes me want to see it more mm. and actually have a discussion, not only with Gyrgyz, but with the consultant. Yeah, uh, their name it. is uh, Ian Field Stewart. I mean, it was a very interesting series of public Facebook posts. I do also think that like, I don't think they work at the Atlantic anymore as a full-time staff member. And so that's also kind of a weird conclusion to when this. You're, when your employer tells you to shut up about something that affects you, then maybe you shouldn't work there. and Maybe they should be held accountable 
or maybe they, the company should be made to answer for why did you shut up a person who's transgender or a transgender advocate when it, this actually pertains to their culture. Wouldn't you want to hear that? But from my experience in theater and in Hollywood and in TV, and uh, no, a lot of times people don't, and then they walk into a trap, and it's like, I'm not the enemy here. I'm trying to help you avoid the controversy yeah. down the road if you actually listen to me. Uh, you're paying me, and I thought I was doing a good job by helping you avoid that, and a lot of uh, white people who are in charge don't want to hear that. They'd rather walk into the storm and then pretend like they didn't know what happened or how, how did that happen? And it's like, you didn't talk to any of the people on your staff. You didn't talk to anyone else. There are always people who are willing to tell you the truth. But you've surrounded yourself with dishonest mirrors and then you look at your reflection and the mirrors don't really show you what you look like. You know, look makes Mariah Carey look like she's a size zero or whatever. It makes you look like what you don't actually appear and then you go out into the light of day and you're shocked that you're having controversy. So get honest mirrors, people, in your life. And those are other people of color and from disenfranchised populations who will tell you the truth. And I want to see producers listening to those mirrors more yes. often, not not just artists. Yeah, and those are honest dramaturgs and directors and producers who will tell you the truth. Not to say that people of color are mirrors for white people to look at themselves, but <laughs> we reflect the reality, just to be clear. I'm not a mirror. Well, or someone <laughs> offering themselves up yes. as a mirror. Yes. Who's compensated appropriately. Yes, I don't mind that. Well, and if you're on staff. All right, so... I think that's actually a really great opportunity to talk about Fires in the Mirror, which is a show by Anna Devere Smith, which is having a revival at the Signature as part of their Residency One program. Uh, so you may remember this show because it was really, I think the show that kind of made her professional reputation. It's, uh, it was originally done as a one-woman show where she played all the parts, uh, and it's based on deep reported interviews with members of the Crown Heights community in the wake of um, the violence of the summer of 1991 when, uh, if you don't remember or weren't born yet, uh, there were two young people in that community, one who was black, one who was from the Hasidic community who were both killed, uh, and there was a lot of intercommunity uh, violence that sort of erupted in the wake of that um, that had been sort of brewing uh, for a lot of complicated reasons for, for a while. She went on to make a movie version of this where she also played all the parts that I think you can still watch on HBO uh, through their On Demand. And what's interesting is part of the, the project of this residency for her is to take these shows that were originally conceived of as tour de forces for her and put them into the mouths and bodies of other actors. So for this production, Michael Benjamin Washington will be playing the parts. Uh, so notably, he's a man. Uh, so already it's a different um, starting point, and it'll be really interesting to see, like, does that change the, the way that the audience receives this? Um, what is it like for it to be someone who's, who wasn't the person who also conducted these interviews to then be giving voice to them. Now, I imagine that this play has been licensed over the years and people have done it, uh, but doing it, you know, at the Signature Theater on 42nd Street gives it a certain kind of spotlight that doing it at a regional theater somewhere else might not have. I will admit that I'm also very excited about this because uh, it is it is coincidence that we chose Nana DeVere Smith book 
for our Maximum Book Club and that our book club episode will be airing the week that this production starts previews. Total coincidence, but a a good coincidence because I'm really excited to follow up reading Letters from a Young Artist. I hope you're reading along with us. With going to see the show that really made her reputation and, and put her on the path to, to Can you interview her like a signature theater lobby interview after the show with audience members as a podcast live? I mean, signature theater, if you want that to happen, uh, email us at podcast at maxmoo.com and we would love to set that Perfect up. Perfect synergy. Yeah. Um, I know they follow us on Twitter, so maybe. Um, but, it, you know, either way, uh, I'm just super excited to see it. It's I love seeing stuff at the signature. I love that tickets are $35. Uh, it. Runs October 22nd to December 1st. And uh, there are a few post-show talkbacks. And a lot of the performances are already sold out. But there are still some tickets available towards the end of the run. And I suspect they're going to extend it. Because why wouldn't you if it's already mostly sold out? So that's Fire in the Mirrors. She's definitely a pioneer in that format of interviewing people. And then playing all the roles. And uh, Dale Orlando Smith with Until the Floods. And many other artists have followed that template of doing the research, which is very tedious and takes mm. years, and then embodying the different characters. I know uh, Lucas Nath has a play out in Chicago right now called Dana H., where someone embodies the character that is his mother telling a story. And I'm fascinated by that sort of seance form of theater, bringing the ghost in and allowing yourself to be the host to a community of voices. It's interesting. She really... Uh I mean, so this wasn't the first play per se to be based on documentary interviews, but it was probably the first one where the playwright did the interviews herself. And it's really gave birth to a whole genre. We have the Civilians in New York as a whole theater company that is based on doing documentary theater with verbatim text from these interviews. And, you know, we have things like uh, Laramie Project that none of that would exist had she not been the trailblazer to to yeah. really say like this is something that not only you can do but you can do it well and you can do it powerfully i mean there are people like emily mann who are doing documentary theater in the 70s about the vietnam war but they would have actors and right. it's sort of different when you have someone like dale orlando smith or uh sarah jones with bridge and tunnel where you embody a community and i think it's not coincidental that most of the people in this genre are people of color and women mm. who are the host for a variety of different voices that usually don't get attention. And so the gimmick or the trick to give them attention is, I will play everyone. Don't worry about casting. You don't have to worry about 10, 15, 20 people you have to pay. I will embody the community that you normally don't see. And like the three people that immediately come to mind are all women of color. Yeah. Speaking of theater, that is verbatim documentary theater. I want to talk about Is This a Room, which is verbatim documentary theater. This is perfect. This is These segues are just like They're going to break down in like a second, yes. I'm I, sure. You know, there was, just, there was some <laughs> meme on Twitter last week about how like there's nothing that podcasters love more on a roundtable discussion than to compliment each other on the segues. <laughs> <laughs> Guilty. So, uh, is This a Room is a verbatim performance of the Arrest of Reality winner, whom st- if you don't know who Reality Winner is, she was 
um, an intelligence consultant who was arrested for leaking information to The Intercept about um, Russian penetration into uh, U.S. election systems, both by hacking a company that uh, made election software and through a uh, coordinated phishing campaign against uh, local election officials. Um, so she, that's what she did, and she got caught doing it um, by steganography and uh, was arrested. And this play is like three people from the FBI come to her house and like tear it apart as they like put her in an empty room and uh, ask her questions. And it's very uncomfortable. It's extremely funny <laughs> um, because basically for the first like two thirds of the play, half the play, she is completely lying just or not lying, but sort of saying, oh, well, you're here about this time that I took a single document out in my bag because I forgot to. And then it's sort of unravels from there. Um, it's by Tina Satter, um, who founded House Straddle, uh, which you might know from uh, Seagull Thinking of You or House of Dance. Reality winner herself is played by Emily Davis, who you might know from things we've talked about in this show, including uh, Singlet and of Government. Uh, and also in the cast is uh, Becca Blackwell, a really good theater maker who was in uh, Hurricane love Diane Becca. recently. Yes, I love yeah. Hurricane Diane. Yes. Um, Becca, who played Hurricane Diane. <laughs> um, so this this production is uh, it, it's actually gone a couple places this year. So it started at um, the Kitchen this January, as one of the like many January festival things. And they actually literally I just realized this last week they did it at Philly Fringe, huh. and so now it's coming to the Vineyard. Um, so tickets uh, start at um, thirty five dollars through the twentieth um, of October. And then they're 45 after that. It runs uh, October 3rd to November 10th. Um, I saw it in January. It's great. I'm excited. I think that leaking is one of the most, the prosecution of leakers is one of the most terrible things we're doing right now. Uh, guess what, America? Everyone leaks. The Pentagon Papers are leaks. But when white men in positions of authority leak, it's not called a leak or they don't get prosecuted for it. And everyone in Washington leaks all the time. Our president leaks all the time confidential information. Everyone in the cabinet. But when you are a woman or someone who's not in a position of power or private manning and you leak, it becomes a crime when you get put in solitary confinement. Mm -hmm. When you leak in your Washington Post or connected Washington Post, you win a Pulitzer Prize and become a savior. And the whole prosecution of leaking is one of the most classicist bullshit things that we do in America all the time. When you're and reality Edward Snowden, winner. reality winner, private Manning, these are all people who weren't high enough on the totem pole to quote unquote leak crucial information about how our government was lying to us. And the whole purpose of leaking and being a whistleblower is that when the government is lying to you, you have a responsibility as a citizen to tell the truth and let other people know that you are being lied to by your democratically elected officials. And which undermines our whole foundation and the institution of this country. And that's what she was doing. That's what Private Manning was doing. That's what all these people are doing. Edward Snowden did that. And they are all like persona non grata, awful, evil people, while other people win Pulitzer Prizes and have movies made about their lives. I mean, when you're a reality winner and you leak very important information that like is part of a national conversation and everyone already knows and just needs confirmation, you get accosted by FBI agents who spend half the time in your house telling you how physically small you are. Uh, and physically intimidating you, which is a lot of what this play is. 
because when you're Mike Gravel and you leak the Pentagon Papers into the Senate record, um, you get to have a full career run for president and then uh, get elder abused by two teens who <laughs> pretend to be on Twitter and run for you for president again. But, you know, you get to be rich and adults tell you Gabbard for some reason. And of course, as we are recording this, there's a new whistleblower scandal happening right now. By the time this releases on Thursday, who knows where that will go or not go. Uh, it's just, it's unfortunate that the era we live in, this is sort of a constant. Well, you need whistleblowers when a government is so dishonest as yeah. the current administration. You need people in there saying, this person is lying. This person is literally trading uh, American secrets and being traitorous in all actions, repeatedly, repeatedly showing that he only cares about himself as president and he will compromise every value and safety guard that this country holds dear. You need a whistleblower to be like, hey, pay attention, this is happening right now. You thought Hillary Clinton was in the past, this is the next Hillary Clinton thing of finding a Russian leaker, in this case, a Russian hacker, now it's Ukrainian hackers or Ukrainian intel to research Joe Biden, who probably won't be the nominee anyway. But whatever, wow. Ukraine, do, do your do your duty. That's on the record now. Yes. That's a, <laughs> probably will not be the place nominee. Your, place your bets. Um, did either of you see, and this is not on the docket, but did either of you see Looking at You at Here? No. no. Um, it was an opera. They don't advertise it very well, but what it essentially is, is what if Edward Snowden and Sheryl Sandberg were lovers That's and then he like didn't <laughs> tell her before he uh, released all of his documents and then like from afar tried to get her to become a like whistleblower on Facebook. That's so hilarious. It's good. It's real That's good. That's a lot. <laughs> he he'd be rich right now if he was lovers with Sheryl Sandberg and had that link. Mm -hmm. He'd be doing book tours and wearing ascots and talking about what a treasure he is to the national discourse. So on that note of how fucked up everything is, I'm going to move to segue. Here's a smooth segue there. I'm doing the podcast thing. Soft power at public theater. I feel like this is played everywhere except for New York City. Uh, it was in L.A. forever. And in San Francisco, too, right? Somewhere up there. And now it's it finally gracing me. us with its presence. New York premieres at the public theater. September 24th to November 10th uh, by Play and Lyrics. It's a musical by David Henry Wong. Music by Jeanne Tesori. Janine. Janine, sorry. Choreography by Sam Pinkleton and directed by Lee Silverman. So I'm excited about this because I've only heard great things from the West Coast. Yes, it is West Coast theater. So you have to take that with a, a I don't know, a oh, curve. Well, try, try, try carefully. Uh, you have to take that with a little bit of a curve. I mean, it's all East Coast artists just because they tried out on the West Coast. Yes, that is true. Uh, what, what is West Coast theater? What is the East Coast version of West Coast theater? The East Coast version of West Coast theater, I guess, is people in a room who are cheating on each other and saying fuck a lot. And they're white people who are drinking cocktails. It's like Neil a Lebeau. delicate balance remixed <laughs> for what? Neil Abute. Yeah, Neil Butte, but a little bit more like East Upper West Side, delicate balance redone, except for the new generation with like text messages and maybe uh, a lot of phone play, is what the East Coast version of how the West Coast looks at us. So I think the West Coast version of how we, how we think the West Coast theater is, is a lot of quick cutting scenes, AKA television on stage. Uh, things sort of float around and sometimes the story falls apart because they're not trapped in a room yelling about, you know, letters they found or adultery. <laughs> yes. So 
I didn't want, I didn't say it. Uh, oh, I didn't mean even the play inheritance. <laughs> I just meant like usually someone is angry about their inheritance that they're either about to get or not get because yes. someone has discovered someone's lover and betrayal and, in and fairness, the family business. In fairness, that is a cliche, but it's a lot easier to follow, which is why East Coast theater travels more because it is easier to follow those simple tropes of like my inheritance, a secret letter found, are you cheating on me? Let's have more cocktails and read text messages. Who will save the family publishing company? Exactly. Um, I had a flashback to something I'm not going to name. Uh, <laughs> and the prom's tomorrow. Yes, and we have to do it on the deadline. I like the prom, but yes. No, I... And the prom's tomorrow. That whole, that's a trip. Never mind. Yeah, I don't know. What is it from? Like the, it just, it's sort of when you list like all the problems of your play, it's like. We're getting evicted and the prom's tomorrow. I'm not, yeah. yes. That's right. Exactly. Yes, yes. <laughs> Daddy wanted me to have the farm. And you're like, oh God. It's easy to follow. So soft power is an exploration of America's current place in the world. <laughs> Told through East-West musical from China's point of view, in which a theater producer from Shanghai forges a powerful bond with Hillary Clinton. Uh, soft power is a fever dream of American politics amidst global conversations. And why do we love democracy and should we? I think this is an important discussion in light of what's going on. But remove Trump from the picture, it feels like America's been heading in this direction for like 40 years. Mm -hmm. It's just that Democrats do it with a little more subtlety, and Republicans outright rape democracy and lie and cheat and steal, and there's a little bit more finesse with uh, Democratic administrations. And we need to have this discussion because the whole thing about, oh, we're the greatest country in the world, democracy rules, has become so pat and cliche that people actually don't think about what they're saying. Do we have a democracy? And do we even want other countries to have a democracy? When other countries have had them, we've quickly overthrown uh, democratically uh, elected presidents in Chile, uh, the prime minister in Iran, whenever they don't appeal to us and install dictators in a quick second. And so the question is, do we want a democracy or do we just want power? at any cost. And I think uh, I know the answer to that, and I'm interested in seeing how this is staged with song. It's, so what's really interesting about it is it's not a straightforward musical. They describe it as a musical inside a play. Um, and the conceit is basically, what if uh, this Chinese impresario saw something like The King and I and did the reverse? That's funny. Uh, right. And so instead of it being you know us writing about uh, you know this... Welsh school teacher going to civilize the savages in Thailand. It's what if the Chinese saw this, uh, you know, American uh, firebrand politician who needed to be civilized by the Chinese. Um, it's I, I don't know. Everything about it just sounds like amazing to me. I'm oh, very God, I have to pay $75 to see this, don't I? Probably. <laughs> or you could get Rush early on in previews, which pretty much starts uh, two days from now. Yes. Yeah, so, and also the public always, the very first preview is 100% free by lottery through Today Ticks, which is probably too late when you hear this episode to enter, but not too late for Ben sitting across the table from Thank me. Thank you. Well, I have a week off from work to write, so I will be there. It's also interesting that this play was originally written before the last election, and so they've spent the last two years, I imagine, uh, really reconceiving uh, not the core of it, but certainly the framing of it, uh, and I'm curious how that will affect it. I just think it's important that we don't place all of the terrible things 
on the current administration, not because they're not terrible, but because the second they're replaced, we'll go back to being complacent and lazy, which is what I feel like the left became under Obama. Mm. Like, oh, everything's fine. I was like, everything's not fine. We're still droning the fuck out of people around the world and killing farmers and people just who are out walking right. for no reason. We are still dying. Our, the ice caps are still melting. It's just that he's slowing it down a little bit. And I think we have to have a discussion if we're actually going to try to change or if this country is at the point where we are just managing the decline. If we are at the point of the patient is going to die, uh, it is terminal, and let's just make them comfortable with this hospice care, or if, we're gonna tr if, or if we are going to try to turn the ship around and actually cure the cancer that is at the heart of this country and on our relations with other nations. Vote for me in 2020. Is soft power going to fix American democracy? That is. Let's uh, hope. <laughs> I hope so. Theater fixing democracy. So uh, another show about regime change with songs is Scotland PA at the Roundabout Theater's Off-Broadway Space LARP Hells. And this is a musical version of an independent film from about 20 years ago that I loved when it came out, which reset the story of Macbeth in the 1970s at a burger joint called McDuff's. And uh, Mac and Lady M are these sort of stoner, 20-something losers working the burger counter who realize that they can better themselves by doing in the boss. And the musical version is by Michael Mitnick, who you might know from uh, Fly By Night, which was a playwrights a couple years ago, or Sex Lives of Our Parents. Um, and the music and lyrics by Adam Guan, who uh, wrote Ordinary Days, which has got a revival at King Company, I think, last year. And it's directed by Lonnie Price. And uh, it seems like the kind of show that should make a good musical in that, the first of all, obviously, the source of the source is theater. And it's just, it's told in such a heightened sort of way, even in the film, uh, that it's, it's you know, kind of campy, uh, and has you know, obviously these big emotions and these uh, big colorful setting. I mean, the 70s and the fast food world are both, I think, sort of uh, the kind of day glow settings that make for good musicals. And uh, I've heard a number of the songs. They did a concert at the Green Room a couple months ago to sort of preview it. And uh, they're doing something really smart, I think, which is that uh, although the songs are definitely theater songs, they're done uh, for the most part as pastiche of 1970s pop so you have a song that sounds like the carpenters or you have a song that sounds like i don't know neil young or whatever and so it all it's all of a piece with the time and the place of the story you're actually selling me on this i was kind of on the fence leaning no about seeing this but this sounds great yeah i i just think it's it seems like it could be a lot of fun and uh the cast is pretty good taylor Iman jones who was so wonderful in head over heels uh, I believe is the Lady Macbeth character. Um, Ryan McCartan is Macbeth. Uh, we have Alicia Umfris in, in the supporting role. Jay Armstrong Johnson as Banco. Uh, it's you know some real solid musical theater types who you know even the show is bad. Just hearing them sing for a couple hours is like good news for me. So I'm very excited about this. Uh, it's already in previews. It runs through December 8th. You know, Laura Pels is not the cheapest place to see shows. Tickets are 79 to 199 But if you are younger than I am, you can get hip ticks, which I think are 30 bucks. Uh, I know it's been on TDF. It's, so if, if it's a show that interests you, I would say don't be scared by the $79 ticket price. There are ways to get in cheaper. 
and I'm excited. I think it's going to be worthwhile. Also, didn't Roundabout, isn't Roundabout the one that just turned their like 30 under 30 ticket program to like 30 under 50 because they were like, ah, right, the entire like millennials and Gen X have been completely economically disenfranchised and uh, we're not going to have any theater patrons if we keep charging. Uh, you know, is that I'm, the one? They they did change some of their program. They they have. I'm in the the. I have aged out of hip ticks, and they've a couple times already offered like. For a while, they were doing something. I think they called like hip ticks plus for people who are under forty five, which went away. And I don't know now they're doing some kind of a membership, like punch card sort of situation. I don't know. They they, they give you a free Sunday. Something like that. They guess they keep changing it, and it's a little hard for me to follow. But I usually get my tickets on TDF anyway. So, <laughs> and I look, I have a young boyfriend. So if I really want to get hit picks, I get them through him. Yeah, theater. One third of our audience has gone away in the last generation. That's a little bit of a death spiral. So we need to start giving free tickets or cheap tickets to a younger generation and to people like us who are aging out of that, who still are supporting it. Otherwise. We might be looking at a future of uh, opera in America, where it's sort of like this thing in the corner that only a few weirdos go to. Although I'll tell you, like there are shows like uh, over the summer, I saw Mean Girls, and like I at forty-one years old felt ancient in that audience. And I don't know that the people who are buying tickets to Mean Girls are the people who are going to buy tickets to Fire in the Mirror, but uh, it does give me hope that you know there there are young people who are either paying or having their parents pay the ticket prices to see the things that speak to them. And I think that it's important for these theaters to not only think about how much the tickets cost, but what are they programming and how are they introducing people to it? The concert that I went to that introduced a bunch of numbers from Scotland PA, it seemed like a significant part of that audience seemed to be part of a roundabout young leadership programs they all came in together and had name tags and were younger than me so I, I think that people are starting to wake up to the idea that it's not just about ticket price but it's also about outreach it's also about programming and hopefully yes. uh, that'll all come together I hope so too I mean I'm I, I've seen plenty of young people in the shows off Broadway and political plays I just I'm talking about the numbers I've seen about the decline in theater around the country and even in New York City uh, and losing a third of audience members within 10 uh, years. Is, although, like, looking at Broadway this year, uh, you know, it was, like, the most successful financially that has been maybe ever. And the average age of a Broadway audience member was 41. Okay. Now, I think that that's because we have so many shows that appeal to children that it's, like, all the three-year-olds who are getting taken by their parents and grandparents oh, to see Frozen, Frozen yeah. um, offsets, <laughs> okay. you know, the, Potter, you know, the people yeah. that are going to see betrayal but yeah. i don't know i mean i was at the broadway flea on my way here and i was talking to a teenager who had seen betrayal last night so what do i All know right. well that's great home. i mean i think what we need to do is to sort of radicalize people with shows on broadway to be like oh this is good but now i want to be a weird theater person and exactly see, like strange shit off off broadway because like then we get the audience well that's the thing about so i i have no interest in betrayal i have no interest in harold pinter but by casting like movie star heartthrobs in a Harold Pinter play, I think that like that's starting that. That's tricking people into seeing like actually challenging intellectual theater. It's not putting them and no disrespect to Sarah Jessica Parker and Matthew Broderick. I love you, I love the play, but it's not putting them into Neil Simon on Broadway, you know? Yes. I saw Betrayal a few weeks ago 
a friend gave me their ticket. And the person sitting to my right appeared to be the traditional theater Broadway person, very lovely woman with her husband. They seem to have an air of Upper West Side patrician prestige. And then the guy sitting to my left was wearing like a giant neon orange shirt, was with his wife, had his trucker's hat on, and was from Chicago. And I was like, oh, okay. And he was like, man, I hope they're singing in this, jokingly, <laughs> jokingly. Uh, and he was like, making all these sort of dad jokes like, hey, quit snoring. We, I, I'm trying to sleep here too. And we're like, ha, ha, ha. Uh, and I was like, oh, your wife maybe brought you here or maybe you stumbled into this or maybe you thought there was going to be singing, but there isn't. Or maybe, or maybe you're really Sasha Baron. loves the Avengers, you know, and yeah. wanted to see Loki on stage. I mean, I that sounds like Sasha Baron Cohen playing a character. I'm right. pretty yeah. sure you were sitting next to Sasha Baron exactly. Cohen. <laughs> like with the <laughs> giant, well, suit on and I, but it was an interesting discussion this was like this is not a typical broadway person he was visiting from chicago he had just seen ain't too proud he was like man there were the singing and choreography <laughs> and i was like yes that's not going to happen here but uh he was the traditional musical theater crowd mm. of people visiting who go to see the big things and now he was saving time to see something a little bit more intimate harold pinter play and he was like man i'm sad i'm gonna miss the rose tattoo uh, and I was like, oh, okay. This and I just ran into him at Jack in Brooklyn smearing <laughs> menstrual blood on his face as part of an audience participation event. So, like, you know, I don't know works. what this is about, but hey, I'll, <laughs> I'll give it a try. Red paint. It's like Mel, Mel Gibson or whatever. Um, speaking of, no, I have no... <laughs> segue from menstrual blood. menstrual blood. I have no clever segue to this one, um, but it's called Georgia Marching is Dead, and it's at EST. And, you know, the reason I'm interested in it is it's, um, it seems to be uh, a straight play by someone who I only know from an absolutely ridiculous parody musical. Um, it's Kachi McMullen, who you might know from writing uh, Locked Up Bitches, which was... Uh, oh, yes, in... Locked Up Bitches. <laughs> Did you not see that? No. That was fun. It was in Flea Serials, and then it was at the pit, and then it was at the Flea again. Ah. Um, and it was a parody musical of Orange is the New Black that takes place in, like, a, a pound. Like, <laughs> like a pet pound. So it's like... I get it, because bitches are dogs. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> the joke, yes. And um, But, like, I had a number of friends, and it, it was absolutely, absolutely, like... Insipid, but in a good way. Like, it was very fun. I had an enormous amount of fun. We definitely did have a number of drinks before it um, and after. But, like, what I'm interested to see is, like, this. So the the abstract of this is that it's um, there is a couple of sober 30-year-olds who are going on a road trip to the South um, in honor of someone from their past. That's sort of that's what it says. And there's in the description, there's something about homemade female urination devices, which I'm sure is like a one second joke. But let's hope there are like 50 of them. <laughs> and then it's great. It's at EST, which like tends to do a little more buttoned up theater than like, I don't know, the pit. <laughs> Although I don't think of EST as being particularly buttoned up as far as no. half their buttons are broken. Right. Sorry. Half their buttons <laughs> are broken, but the top, the, they do button only up to the second to exactly. last button. Right. Yes. I mean, yes, it's not the pit, but it's also not roundabout. You know, it's MCC or someplace. Right. Yeah. Um, and Diana O is in it also, which oh, nice. is sort of a I, you know, I That's just will buy a ticket. Point. Yeah, I will buy a ticket because Mark Diana O is in it. Play. Icon, underground icon. Yeah. It's uh, October second to twenty uh, seventh. 
Early bird tickets are 20, so get those now. Uh, student and senior 25, regular 30. That's great. I guess it is my turn. And the last play I have on my list is Underlying Chris, a new play by Will Eno and directed by Kenan Leon. A very interesting combination at second stage. So this should be fascinating running from October 29th to December 15th. D- David and I, you can't see this, but we both made real strange faces. God, I hope the dramaturg in that production is getting hazard pay. <laughs> I have to talk to you guys afterwards. Uh, but <laughs> uh, Underlying Chris is, according to the synopsis, a life-affirming, high-spirited look at how a person comes into their identity and how sometimes life's tiniest moments uh, reveal the most profound changes in our lives. In these divided times, the play serves as a celebration of our differences and individuality. So it's it's another Will Eno play about identity and the shape-shifting nature of our identities. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I feel like this is his genre that he's carved out, quirkiness, and how our identity tricks us and betrays us. And I kind of love it. We don't need tons of Will Enos, but it's nice to have one and that is carving us out. Will Arbery is probably another Will Eno in that genre of white guys talking about identity in sort of an apolitical world. And I, I like that within measure. And I feel like Skittles the musical was probably the best thing I saw last year. And some people would say that's uh, terrible that I would say that, but it was a delightful commercial on Broadway on Super Bowl Sunday that was hilarious, that made fun of itself. Near Broadway. Aware. Near Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> and we got, I got in for free and I was sitting next to him and I saw him a few days before working on the play at Equinox in the gym, uh, writing on his laptop. So to see someone still banging out these really weird plays after seeing flu season, I think in 2002, 17 years later, to see him still banging out these weird plays. No one saw flu season at Blue Heron except for me and like 10 people. It was hilarious and weird and also about identity in a psychiatric ward. Uh, and so I'm interested in this and this collaboration at second stage. I don't know anything about it. I don't know how it's going to come, come across, uh, but it definitely sent up a flare on my radar. What, what are you going to say? I, I've got nothing. I honestly, Skittles the musical is my only real exposure to Willie Now. <laughs> oh no! Well, I what, am heartbroken. Like I didn't see it because my other exposures to Willie Now uh, have made me hate Willie Now. Oh, like, realistic I, Joneses, among many other things. Yeah, well, the uh, album I believe is still on Spotify. I highly recommend listening to it. It's I only may. like three songs. I don't have Spotify, but I'll. It's probably also on YouTube I'll find it. or wherever yeah. else you find music legally streaming. They also, everyone who went to the show got a copy of the script. I did not. I didn't see the show. I do I know people about who, it, so I, well, I, obviously aren't, but. I didn't get a copy, but I was taking someone else's tickets. I walked by the theater and just went up to the box office saying, are there any free tickets? And they handed me wow. box seats from someone who just turned it in. So I wasn't supposed to be there. It was just on a whim. And wanting to catch Will Eno, I it's hit or miss. It's That's not near always Broadway a, magic. <laughs> it's near. It's not always a, a great, but I appreciate someone taking big swings or against in Will Eno's case, big bunts uh, at bat to try to get that ball and move it forward. And he's quirky. He's a delightful man. I met at the Pin Festival a few years ago when we were there for the Australian night apparently to see Australian plays. And it was pretty much me and Will Eno in the audience looking at each other. So we came up to him like, hi. <laughs> um, we had a great conversation. And he seems like a really nice, uh, that's terrible to say, a nice guy. But a nice guy who actually is uh, exploring interesting 
things about our identity. Just say it. What do you want to say? I feel like you guys are like holding your tongue. I get not. No, I just I, my literally my exposure to Will, you know, is the cast recording from Skittles, okay. the musical. So I just <laughs> I, I feel like I have an idea of what his work is like from listening to Maximu. But yes. otherwise, uh, uh, you know, absurdist theater isn't super much my thing. And I feel like that's where he often falls. So I've seen his work at places like Second Stage for a while. And I feel like he's the kind of writer who should actually be doing weird shit downtown. And he's evolved beyond that. And I find that to mellow those kinds of writers. So I think my exposure to Whitley now has been in a phase of his career where maybe I uh, don't appreciate him because I wasn't able to appreciate his early work. That's valid. And people do get mellow when they're produced uptown and getting a lot more money and appealing to an older audience. That's a valid critique. Well, I'm going to talk about someone who is returning to his roots, which is uh, Gerard Alessandrini, who is bringing back the venerable Forbidden Broadway to the Triad Theater, which is the site where the very first Forbidden Broadway took place low so many years ago uh, in the early 80s. And for those of you who are unfamiliar, Forbidden Broadway is a wildly successful parody series that's been going on for longer than I think both of you guys have been alive, where this guy, Gerard Lesson Reading, has been doing um, song parodies of Broadway songs to basically lampoon the state of the commercial theater in New York. And when it was brand new, it was a huge phenomenon, and uh, stars loved to show up to see how they would get skewered. And it was, it was both vicious and loving at the same time. And I think for a lot of us, our sort of like ideas, like our parody ideas of what the last two or three generations of Broadway stars are like actually come from Forbidden Broadway uh, because it was so prolific. And, you know, at its height, uh, they produced cast recordings of like, I don't know, like 15 different editions. And there was a coffee table book and it toured and there were resident companies. And about five years ago, he stopped because he said theater was no longer fun to make fun of. It was just sad. And so he took a break because, uh, in part because he felt like the line had blurred a little bit. Like there was one moment when there was a Broadway musical that had a number that was so close to a previous Forbidden Broadway parody that it was like uh, a little uncomfortable from a copyright perspective. Uh, (laughs) That was Spamalot's The Song That Goes Like This. Uh, and to the point where he was like, you know, maybe maybe my job is done. Like I, I lost, and the the you can't parody parody. Um, but he's taking a break, and commercial theater has gotten better in the last decade, and he's back with uh, Forbidden Broadway: The Next Generation. And I'm looking forward to seeing what he has to say about things like Hades Town and Tootsie and uh, everything else that's that's going on now. Okay, opinion about Tootsie and. <laughs> Um, it's a it's a cast of newcomers, which is really exciting. And uh, also kind of exciting is that the music director and pianist for this production is Fred Barton, who is the original music director and pianist of the very first Forbidden Broadway, you know, 30 plus years ago, uh, returning to his roots as well. So it's just, I don't know, it's just super fun. It's one of those things where it's done on um, a, a li- what looks like a shoestring budget where they usually have very clever costumes uh, but, you know, made out of the kind of things that you find in the corners of your apartment that have been neglected. And uh, Is it the sort of SpongeBob shoestring where it's 
obviously pretending to look shoestring and is obviously intensely expensive. No, because this is at the triad. They, they don't have money to be expensive. Okay. Like this is, I mean, you know, when, when they started this, everyone who was doing it was like a waiter by day and uh, literally like pulling this together with what they could uh, after hours. And poverty, now, poverty is the muse of ingenuity. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and it's just it. Uh, you know, the one thing I will say for him is that the lyrics that he writes are technically of a skill level that is higher than some of what I have seen on Broadway in the last several years. Uh, he's just, you know, he knows that some of his humor comes from specificity, both in terms of how the jokes land, but also like if you're gonna make fun of. Stephen Sondheim, then your lyrics better rhyme like Stephen Sondheim, and uh, so it's just it's it's of a high quality. It's usually very funny. Um, it's usually funny enough that even if you haven't seen everything they're making fun of, as long as you are sort of like aware of kind of the big bullet points of each of these things, like you'll be able to laugh at the jokes and get them. I mean, I'll say I grew up li- listening to those albums that they had released over the years, and. I was not a New York theater person as a child and all the jokes are inside baseball jokes and I still found them very funny. And I feel like I learned a lot about not just about like what these shows were, but also like what made them interesting and what made them good or bad from listening to these parodies, you know, Uh, like uh, in Forbidden Broadway volume three, there's like a, a, hilarious and vicious parody of the speed the plow production that had madonna in it uh <laughs> set to the rain in spain from my fair lady uh i train in vain <laughs> i strain in vain to train madonna's brain and, and and it tells you everything you need to know about madonna about speed the plow about david mamet uh and is hilarious and tuneful so uh i'm really looking for i already have my tickets for the return it's at the triad so it's a cabaret theater which means that uh there's two drink minimum in addition to whatever the tickets cost but if you buy your tickets through tdf you do not have to buy drinks um it is not the cheapest show i think the full price tickets start at 79 dollars, which is why i would recommend looking for those discounts not including the drinks not including the drinks okay yeah Yeah. um but uh if it's anything like the previous forbidden broadway runs there are always ways to get in cheaper whether it's at the tkts booth or through tdf or discount codes or whatever well, speaking of uh, Speed the Plow, I'm talking about American Buffalo. God, no. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> hey, Lawrence Fishburne. Apparently, it's coming back into town. Get that paycheck. Yeah. Although, I'm sure that Blackish is lining your pockets just fine. Um, well, yeah, he's going to be in the new <laughs> Matrix movie, right? Like, I'll be fine. Oh, right, yeah. I think he's going to be fine. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm talking about uh, the new Masculinities Festival. This festival was brought to my attention by Liz Richards Krebs, um, co-host of Maximu, who has a friend in it. I have never heard of it before. Uh, It's apparently been going on since like 2012. And what it is, is it's a festival at the LGBT Center on 13th Street about masculinity and um, gender expression. And it is intentionally open to artists like who are not just men of all gender identities and sexualities. And it is itself a like series of short works that are a meditation on masculinity. So what it is, it's on, um, it's a one day thing. It's on October 19th. It takes place from 4.30 to I assume 8.30. Um, there's, there's four parts of it. 
two are at 4.30 and two are at 6.30. There's, that was then, this is now, troubling expectations, bodies at work, and pushing for the impossible, and they each have two or three pieces, some of which are music, some of which are performance art, some of which are solo pieces. And this has been at the LGBT Center for the past seven years, or do they switch it around? I think they've switched it around. Was um, it at New York and Poets Cafe last year? That I don't know. Um, they know say in their about. description that it started at... Their website's very difficult to navigate. Um, well, I can't find it. I only asked because someone reached out to me via email. I feel like last fall asking if I wanted to be a part of something and write about my masculinity. And I was like, that's a big question. <laughs> I'm a little busy. I don't know what field this is. It's a very important topic, but that's a huge undertaking. And We'll come I see a short piece by Aaron Squire in next year's New Masculinities Festival. I would love to see this coming up because so, I'm fascinated by how they're going to do this. The piece that Liz's friend is doing, um, his name is Ryan Foster Carey. And um, what it is about is that he fell out a fifth floor window and he had no memory of it until recently. He just remembered it. Um, Yeah. So it's called What Happens to Boys in Chelsea. And so that sounds very interesting. But there are a bunch of different artists in this sort of mini festival thing. And uh, I'm going to go check it out. It seems super cool and it is 15 for students and seniors 20 general admission clearly there's like a lot of like you get to see a lot of stuff for that so yeah check it out i will be there sounds great so did we hit our three we have hit all of our targets we have all right time to go out drinking yeah <laughs> like the yeah, boys are 1 50 p.m on <laughs> sunday <laughs> I need, I need to town. pregame before I see the lightning thief tonight. <laughs> um, Are you seeing the lightning thief? I am. Let me know how that is. I'm going to check it out. I have to say, I saw the tour. I thought it was delightful. Oh, great. Okay, great. Yeah, so I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I know Robert, Rob Rokiki from like years ago. So I'm going to check it out this week too. Man knows how to write a tune. Let me yeah, tell you that. I know. Well, so a little plug for the lightning thief, I guess. And uh, yeah. if I may plug the Maximu Book Club one more time, we are reading Anna Devere Smith's Letters to a Young Artist together and we're going to be discussing it on our October 24th episode I believe which means that if you have any thoughts or questions or ideas from when you read it that you'd like to share with us so that we can include you in the on-air discussion you should either tweet it at tweet it at us or email it to podcast at maximum.com by October 20th and we are really looking forward to having that discussion. I'm going to order that on Amazon Prime. You know what? We live in an age where you can just press a button. I may not be able to make this, but I'll, I just want to read along to this podcast. I will say there's an audiobook version where she reads the book. And yes, when she quotes people, she does do voices. So, uh, well, that sounds if, like maybe the best way to read it. Then. So if you're an audiobook person, uh, that's, that's how I'm doing it. I bought, I bought the regular book and then I was like, wait a minute. And so I bought both. I bought it twice. That's All how right. committed I am. Well, I have a walk to work that's like 20 or 30 minutes. I can knock this book out in like a week. Oh, yeah. That's great. You know, I'm I'm very sad that I wasn't able to talk about a play I'm seeing this week because it ends it. the day after our episode comes, or two days after. Give us but a shout out. It's, I'm just going to say, it's called The Trade Federation, or Let's Explore Globalization Through the Star Wars Prequels. Oh, I've heard such good things about I that. I saw a reading of it. Yeah, it's Andy Boyd's play. It's at IRT, and uh, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's... It's Andy Boyd writes a version of the Star Wars prequels that accentuates the like Bush era political <laughs> um, commentary. That's funny. It's so silly and good. And I think they might give you ping pong balls to throw it. Though. Nice. And it's closing this week. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's running through the 28th. Alas.
Well, I'm going to run out there since, is there anything on Monday? I have my Mondays for you. Is there anything like popping on a Monday? I saw Seawall that was available on a Monday in a life. Anything I should be checking out? I don't know what's up Mondays right now. Oh, actually, yes. I believe Monday night at Birdland is Everybody Rise, a resistance cabaret, which is uh, is a return engagement, and it's by Joe Keenan, who you might know because he was one of the main writers on Frasier. Oh. Um, he's also an incredibly talented lyricist and parodist, and it's a series of songs about our current political moment. It's got a cast full of Broadway favorites. Uh, it's got a little bit of a rotating cast. So I don't know who's on and which day. But Christine Petty is in it. I know Chip Zions did some of them. Um, uh, it's a whole bunch of people, and I am not going to remember who. Yeah. But oh, baby. I hear the blues are calling. <laughs> Toss salad and scrambled eggs. But um, uh, I think of Resistance, I think of Frasier. No, but I'm sure. That uh, but, but seriously, like, he, uh, he's also a delightful Twitter presence. Yeah. Uh, but I, I am trying to figure out if I can make it there because it, it just looks really awesome. That's great. Well, thank you for inviting us to your abode thank you for coming here i'll stop recording thank you so much for joining us for today's episode of the maximo theater and performance podcast if you have questions comments or opinions that differ from ours we'd love to hear from you you can find us on twitter at maximo if you enjoyed the show please leave a rating and review on apple podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and we have merch you can buy coffee mugs, tote bags, and stickers with your favorite Maximu-isms on them. You can find them all in the store at Maximu.com. All proceeds go to helping the podcast improve our sound quality. And don't forget, our episode on October 24th will be our first book club. So make sure to pick up Anna DeVere Smith's Letters to a Young Artist in print, or, as David suggested, as an audiobook read by the author. See you again in two weeks for our next review episode.